Welcome to Creation, Myth, or Miracle. This is your host, ex-atheist Richard Walker. Greetings once again to those of you who think for a living, or maybe for a hobby, and hopefully do a bit of thinking for yourself, or are at least aware of why it is you believe certain things are true. As my previous listeners are possibly aware, and as my intro states, I grew up as an atheist. I became a Christian and then a creationist over 35 years ago now, and I became very interested in this subject matter of where does the evidence really lead? What is really supported by physical evidence? I have a lifelong love of science, and I studied abstract mathematics a bit, so I have some background in the notion of how do you really prove something logically? How do you truly support the position you're taking without using illogical or fallacious reasoning? Well, it turns out that particular background is useful in the area of evolution and creation and intelligent design and the controversies among these subjects. Why is it useful? Because there are so many bad arguments that are believed by so many people. Or at least they believe it until the bad reasoning gets pointed out to them. My avocation is that of a Christian apologist, meaning I try to provide reasons for what I believe and try to help other people think through what they think they believe. And I've had the opportunity to have many discussions over the last 35 years with a variety of people who were certainly not Christians, many of whom were atheists, virtually all of whom were evolutionists. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to do that, One of the responses that I hope to get early on in a discussion with anyone is simply this. And I've been fortunate to have this response a number of times. It's the response that says, I never thought about it that way before. That's when I know somebody is beginning to take the blinders off and think about things in a different way. They're expanding their worldview a bit and they're considering the full range of options And also, perhaps, they're no longer being fooled by the frequently shouted but fallacious arguments. Well, I want to talk about one of the single most commonly encountered tactics, really, in attempting to get people to not pay any attention whatsoever to creationists or even people who hold to intelligent design theory. And it's the notion that if something's really right scientifically, it will be in the mainstream journals, It's usually phrased something like this, if creation science, and I need to get derision in my voice, let me try that again, if creation science were really science, then it would be published in the mainstream journals, and since it isn't, it's nonsense and you should absolutely ignore it. Now, many of you have probably heard something like that. By the way, it used to be said about intelligent design as well. It used to be claimed there was absolutely not a single refereed article supportive of intelligent design. That is why atheists and evolutionists were so furious when Stephen Meyer's article was published back in 2004, and they instigated an absolute witch hunt after the editor of the journal, that's Richard Sternberg, holder of two PhDs, the editor of the journal who dared to allow such an article to be published. He was accused of all kinds of things that were simply lies. It was claimed, well, the article wasn't peer-reviewed. He violated the process. Well, that's not true. 
There were all kinds of lies and slurs spread around about Richard Sternberg, and he, in fact, lost his job as editor of that journal. Why? Because he removed the tactic from the evolutionist quiver of arrows of saying, intelligent design has never been published in the referee journals. That was no longer true, and they were absolutely furious. But it raises an important question, and the question is, What's the history of our peer-reviewed journal system, and how well does it really work? You might be surprised by some of the things that you would find if you investigate this area a bit. But first, let me define what I mean by peer-reviewed. Nowadays, somebody writes an article, they submit it to the editor of a particular journal that they wish to have it published in, the editor may sit on it for months or not, decide to farm it out to several anonymous peer reviewers who get to read your article in its entirety and attempt to convince the editor as to whether or not it ought to be published. Of course, an editor can squash something right off the bat by simply refusing to even submit it to reviewers. But this process of letting anonymous reviewers essentially decide the fate of an article that an editor thinks is at least worthy of consideration has not always been in place. There's an interesting little blog that I ran across just very recently, Joe Nova, Skeptical Science for Dissident Thinkers. And one of the blogs is titled, Newton, Einstein, Watson, and Crick Were Not Peer-Reviewed. And she points out that peer review by anonymous, unpaid reviewers is not part of the scientific method and that once upon a time, the fate of scientific papers was dependent upon an editor whose reputation depended on making sound judgments about what to publish. And modern science has shifted this responsibility from a single identifiable editor to an anonymous committee. Well, gee, what could go wrong there? And there's a few interesting quotes here from a Melinda Baldwin who looked into the history of peer review. How about this? I was incredibly surprised to learn that Nature, one of the most prestigious journals in the English-speaking world, or in the world period, those are my words, I was incredibly surprised to learn that Nature published some papers without peer review up until 1973. In fact, many of the most influential texts in the history of science were never put through the peer review process, including Isaac Newton's Principia, Albert Einstein's 1905 paper on relativity, and James Watson and Francis Crick's 1953 Nature paper on the structure of DNA. So you had absolutely revolutionary ideas, a pushing forward of our knowledge about how the physical world worked, that happened without any formal peer review. Interesting, isn't it? Well, she also notes, crucially, journals without refereeing processes were not seen as inferior or less scientific than those that used referees. Few scientists thought that two anonymous readers would better judge a paper than, say, the great physicist Max Planck, who was on the editorial board of the prominent German journal Annalen der Physik. Scientists unaccustomed to refereeing did not see it as an obviously superior system. In 1936, Albert Einstein who was used to people like Planck making decisions about his papers without outside opinions, was incensed when the American journal Physical Review sent his submission to another physicist for evaluation. 
In a terse note to the editor, Einstein wrote, I see no reason to address the, in any case erroneous, comments of your anonymous expert. On the basis of this incident, I prefer to publish the paper elsewhere. Doesn't sound like Einstein thought a whole lot of our anonymous reviewer system, does it? Well, Watson and Crick's paper might never have been published. Nature's former editor, John Maddox, was fond of saying that the groundbreaking 1953 DNA paper would never have made it past modern peer review because it was too speculative. So understand the peer review system is not some long-held piece of the scientific method, nor has it been in use for thousands of years or even hundreds of years, or even 100 years for that matter, not in the way it is today. And some of the biggest discoveries that have ever occurred did so without the formalization of anonymous peer review. We'll continue this discussion in just a moment. On today's show, we're talking about our modern anonymous peer review process in our secular mainstream science journals. And the reason we're doing that is actually quite simple. The more you understand about how this process actually works, the less useful the evolutionist tactic of simply saying creationist ideas aren't published in mainstream journals, so they're scientific nonsense. That tactic won't work if you understand the process, and hence, this show is about trying to provide you with a bit of information about how the process actually works, or doesn't, as the case may be. And as I usually try to do, just so you don't think I'm making up the statements by evolutionists, consider this one example. Richard Mice of Indiana University School of Medicine said, If the truths of creation science were as plainly manifest and as crashingly obvious as its proponents claim, surely they could convince at least a few outside reviewers of their validity on scientific merit alone. Now notice it's pretty easy to make a statement like that, and in so doing, completely avoid addressing the scientific arguments presented by creation scientists. It is a tactic, it is not part of science. And because this tactic is so commonly used, there are quite a number of articles discussing peer review, how it works and what some of the problems are, at creation.com. I'm sure there's quite a number over at Answers in Genesis as well. Creationists are very aware of how this works and actually want you to understand the real process much better than evolutionists want you to understand it. And in fact, getting your paper published in one of the top-tier journals, such as Nature or Science, is the holy grail for a science researcher. And yet Thomas Stossel, a professor at Harvard Medical School, stated the following, But unbeknownst to the media, the journals at the top got there because of herd behavior by researchers, not because they are better than lower-tier journals at vetting research quality. Here's why. Researchers submit their best work to the top journals, which can therefore afford to maintain their prestige by rejecting, not publishing, many high-quality papers. That's brand creation, not science. Most of their editorial effort goes into deciding which submitted papers are sufficiently newsworthy. Anonymous peer review by jealous competitors has its merits, but it has a tendency to select for fashionable, if relatively unoriginal and inoffensive papers, although these reports often do not substantively advance scientific knowledge, and many subsequently are invalidated. 
One of the major effects of our existing journal system is the development of orthodoxy. If your paper agrees with what most people agree, then it's highly likely that the reviewers will agree with you. Toward the end of this show, we'll look at a few comments by some mainstream scientists today who are Nobel Prize winners and who say this peer review system is fundamentally broken and they refuse to submit papers to the mainstream journals anymore. That's rather interesting, isn't it? Furthermore, it's very well known among science researchers that many, many important results and heavily cited papers, some which describe work resulting in a Nobel Prize, were originally rejected by peer review. That's well known by scientists, not so well known by the public. So let's be very clear. The fact that any paper is rejected by a journal for peer review in no way proves it's not scientific, that the work is wrong, or that it's inferior in any way. And everybody familiar with the peer review system is fully aware of that fact. Now the other side of the coin is, just how good is the science in the papers that are published? Well, there has been an ongoing rash of uncovered fraud among papers published in mainstream peer-reviewed journals. In fact, it's gotten so bad, there's a website you can go to now, retractionwatch.com, that simply catalogs the ongoing retractions of papers that are wrong. A couple of years ago, I was having a discussion with a young neurologist who had just completed his Ph.D. work and was writing his thesis, and we were talking about the medical results that exist in the peer-reviewed literature. I was going to try to gently broach this subject that, you know, there might be some problems with this system. He cut me off and said, we know that 90% of the published results cannot be repeated. And I've talked to other medical researchers at major institutions who say it's a well-known problem. Results get published, positive results on a particular drug therapy, for example, but when you try to repeat it, it doesn't work. And yet the original results passed peer review. So the experts and the practitioners in the area are well aware of the problems. Well, that sort of leads to another major objection to an intelligent design or creationist view of the world, and that is the idea that if most scientists believe something, then it must be true. That old view of consensus science. And I've had discussions with several very intelligent, you know, technically capable people, people who design uh, military CPUs for computers, people who do system engineering on complex systems, etc., who could not defend their belief in evolution. They thought they could until they tried, when they ultimately realized they really didn't know enough to begin to defend it. They said, well, but since most scientists believe it, it must be true. That's a very common position. We've talked about that a fair amount, this notion of consensus science. Look that up at my website, creationmythormiracle.com. But I'll just mention one line very briefly from M.D. Michael Crichton in a speech at Caltech in which he said, There is no such thing as consensus science. If it's consensus, it's not science. If it's science, it's not consensus, period. Science is supposed to be about figuring out what really works. How does the world really behave around us? We want accurate descriptions of the world. That's what science provides us when it does its job properly. So let's briefly address this idea of commonly held scientific beliefs. Be back in just a moment. (music) 
Well, it's certainly the case that the majority, or at least the vocal majority, of mainstream scientists do not buy into intelligent design, nor a creationist view of the world, or at least they won't admit they do. But for sake of argument, let's just say, no, the majority of them believe the standard evolutionary atheist view of the Big Bang, life came from non-life, abiogenesis, by natural means, and Darwinian-type evolution has taken over since then, and that's how everything got to be the way it is. So, is it really necessary to believe that that must be true if the majority of scientists believe it? Well, consider these long-held beliefs. In the 5th century B.C., Empedocles theorized that one could see by virtue of rays emanating from one's eyes. So rays shot out from your eyes, and that's what allowed you to see things. Well, falsifying this notion required no more than pointing out that one cannot see in a dark room. But despite this simple observation, his theory enjoyed substantial support for the next 1,600 years. Or perhaps my personal favorite, for nearly 2,000 years, all the way into the early 1800s, when people fell ill, the peer-reviewed literature confirmed that the best course of action was to let some blood out of them. The simple observation that death rates increased when this treatment was applied was dismissed out of hand on the premise that, if it was true, it would appear in the medical journals. Sound familiar? By the way, I borrowed that from the blog Great Moments in Peer Review Through History over at Uncommon Descent. So it's easy to see scientifically held beliefs that we now know were completely wrong. So, given that, why should we believe that which happens to be today's scientific consensus is guaranteed to be true? Just because it's a consensus belief is not evidence that it's true. It's simply evidence that most of the scientists seem to believe it. Evidence that a scientific position is actually true needs to be scientific evidence, not how many people claim they believe it. By the way, that reminds me, a recent poll that I read showed that just because people say they believe in evolution doesn't mean they know anything at all about it. Those who claim they believe in it scored abysmally bad at knowing how it supposedly works just like those who said they didn't believe it. There was no correlation to knowledge of the subject and whether or not they said they believe in it. And listen carefully to this one. This is one of the most astounding things I've ever read about the peer-reviewed process. There was an experiment done. The experiment involved taking papers that had already been published in refereed journals and resubmitting them to the very same journal. All they did was change the name of the author and what institution they were supposedly affiliated with. The actual paper was identical to one already published. And it wasn't like they published them 50 years earlier. It was between 18 and 32 months earlier. And of the sample of 38 editors and reviewers, only three detected the resubmissions. And since they weren't detected as resubmissions, nine out of the 12 articles used in this experiment continued on through the review process. Eight of the nine were rejected for publication by the very journal that had already published that identical paper, except for the name on the front of the paper and which prestigious institution they belonged to. 
Interestingly, some of the comments, the grounds for rejection on these papers, were sometimes described as, quote, serious methodological flaws, end quote. These are papers that were already published. Now, they might actually have had flaws in them, and nobody bothered to look because there was a prestigious author on the original submission. I don't know. That certainly happens. We've seen instances of fraud where a particular researcher publishes nonsense for 10 or 20 years. Seems like everything he submits gets published. And oh, by the way, as one researcher that I just spoke to within a week stated to me, of course, nobody wants to publish negative results. There is intense pressure by the principal investigators on research projects to get positive results for publication. And this gatekeeper-type system where an editor has so much authority to simply reject things from even being considered for publication sets things up for prejudice. Bias comes into play big time. In most cases, letters from creationists to journals are just flat-out refused. And what's interesting is sometimes the prejudice is openly admitted. We just talked about evolutionist Carl Guyberson a couple of episodes ago. I recommend you go listen to that. He also used to be the editor of Research, News, and Opportunities in Science and Theology, and he said the following, If an editor chooses to publish a hostile review of a book, common politeness would suggest the author ought to have some space to respond. But editors have a higher calling than common politeness, namely the editorial mission and guidelines that inform every decision as to what will be printed and what will be rejected. And he said, in my editorial judgment, the collection of ideas known as scientific creationism lacks the credibility to justify publishing any submissions that we get from its adherents. The collection of creationist ideas, a 6,000-year-old earth, no common ancestry, and he mentioned several other aspects, has been so thoroughly discredited by both scientific and religious scholarship that I think it is entirely appropriate for research news to print material designed to move our readers away from that viewpoint. For example, we might publish a negative review of a book promoting scientific creationism, while refusing to allow the author a chance to respond. Is this an unfair bias, or is it proper stewardship of limited editorial resources? That is an attitude that has absolutely no place whatsoever within science. But you need to understand it is precisely that type of attitude that does its best to guarantee that creationist articles do not get published in the mainstream journals, that's why they're not published there. Creationists long ago, decades ago, started their own peer-reviewed journals so that they have a venue in which to publish ideas and gain the back and forth among scientists that is part of the real scientific process. I mean, think about it. So give some serious thought to the fact that the editor of a journal might say, we will publish a negative review of anything related to creation science, and we will not allow a response by creationist scientists. That amounts to admitting that what you get when you read their journal, at least on those subjects, is propaganda. Think about it. Propaganda is a form of communication aimed towards influencing the attitude of a population towards some cause or position. And as a journal editor, Carl Guyberson flat says he considers it appropriate to print material designed to move our readers away from this viewpoint. That is an absolutely clear step into the realm of publishing propaganda. This is nothing new to people who take a 
non-mainstream view, for example, the physicists who don't go along with the Big Bang, and certainly anyone who dares to question Darwinian evolution. And so the point of this episode is simply to give you some additional information that you were likely unaware of, so that you are better prepared to not fall for the propaganda-based tactics that are used to try to keep you from even looking at the scientific arguments presented in favor of a creation view of history. After all, if you never look at it, you won't be convinced by it, will you? So if you consider yourself a skeptical, free-thinking type of individual, you need to do some work on your own. Listening to this episode is perhaps a start in that direction. There really is evidence for the Creator God in the world around us. All we have to do is open our eyes and look at it. SeaCreationMythOrMiracle.com